Hello and welcome to this week's Propcast with Andrew Teacher from Montford Communications. And we're talking about sustainability, climate risk, leadership and change within the design sector, the construction sector, the development sector. And it's a privilege to be joined by Elizabeth Montgomery, who's Building Design Sustainability Leader Atkins, and Martina Concordia, who's Project Manager at Bureau 4. Elizabeth, Martina, great to see you. Great to have a European lineup to propcast this week. Elizabeth, you've got Norwegian, you've got Viking blood in you. Martina, Latin blood from Italy. So great to have a real mix of cultures. And I'm keen to understand, you know, in this conversation, how those cultural backgrounds both drive your approaches to your roles, but also some of the differentiations between Italy, Norway, England, US, other places that both of you have worked, if that's good. Elizabeth, let's start with you. So you're at Atkins, it's a global engineering firm, you do a lot of design, and you, both of you, Elizabeth, you and Martina, have been working a lot with the UK Green Buildings Council in recent months on the leadership programmes. Tell us about that, Elizabeth. What have those programmes entailed? And more broadly, how can you as an engineering firm, as an architect, how can you influence? Because you're not the money, you don't make the decisions necessarily at a client level, and often you are coming in after someone has decided, this is what we're going to spend, this is what we're going to build. Yes, so I joined Atkins just over a year ago. I was brought in as sustainability lead, as the first sustainability lead of that part of the business. And luckily that coincided with the UK Green Building Council's Change Accelerator programme. So I saw that as a fabulous, almost kismet moment that I was trying to bring this cultural change. It's a great word, kismet. We've not it had is, it on yes. the podcast. <laughs> what a brilliant, that's the best word in five years. Lovely. So just yeah. right back to that, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Elizabeth. Just in terms of Atkins, can you just maybe just give us the elevator pitch? So people will be familiar with Atkins, but it's one of those companies that everyone's heard of, but no one quite knows everything it does. So tell us about your part within the wider business. Right. So Atkins itself is, well, it was a British company. We're about 8,000 in the UK. I think about five years ago, they were bought by a Canadian company, SNC-Lavalin. So worldwide, we're about 50,000. But in the UK, there's the infrastructure business. Within that is building design. So we got about 1,000 designers and you've been doing things like roads hs2 some big big infrastructure projects yes that's what we're mainly known for the sort of rail and the roads and the infrastructure we're not as known for our buildings but that is developing but you will be. that's why you're here exactly excellent yes so we have architects and engineers and my job is to change the culture within building design to make everything fundamentally more sustainable. That's a tall order, right? It is, but I love a big challenge. So for me, it was when I was recruited for this role, it was a great fit because I felt that my background and, you know, almost 25 years of working in environment and building design, this was a great challenge to come in and really change that culture and also bring, so the last 13 years I've been working in Norway, and bringing that experience from, dare I say, slightly more sustainably advanced countries. Just be honest. To the UK. We're absolute Luddites in this country compared to the Nordics. The stone I would throw back at you, Elizabeth, would be that, hang on, this is an economy built on oil. So 
how sustainable is Norway? We're facing that out. So yes, very quick Norwegian history lesson. Before we found the oil in the early 70s, Norway was a third world country, pretty much. We were extremely poor. We found the oil and suddenly we were at one point the world's richest country. All the oil companies are now switching their focus to sustainable renewables. But at the moment, yes, unfortunately, there is a reliance on oil in our economy which I hope will change. But when you say that you're ahead and we'd estimate that's probably about 15 years ahead, in what tangible ways are British people behind and what are the steps that can be taken to narrow that gap? Well, it's the alternative materials that are being used, so not just concrete and steel and brick facades. So looking more to timber, timber frame, looking at wood panelling on facades, for example, that there might be a slight scepticism and a fear, really, of using those types of materials at the moment. So what I would encourage the British industry to do is look to other countries, look to Scandinavia, look to Germany, look to the Netherlands, and see what they're doing there. Because our clients want solutions that are proven, but they want them to be proven in this country. And that's, that's going to take nonsense, so long. isn't it? Because it's yeah. chicken and egg. We'll, we'll come back to materials and safety in a minute. Obviously, over the last couple of months, we've gone through the anniversary of Grenfell and that's still ongoing, the fallout from that. And let's come back to that. I want to ask you both around the big elephant in the room there is the knee-jerk response that I think we've had to that crisis and that disaster and how our response is hampering the future. Martina, let me come to you. Welcome to Propcast. It's great to have you on as well. So you grew up in Italy, around Italy and Venice as well. And was that experience being around loads of canals? Did that sort of put you in the mood for project management and infrastructure? Were there other things? Was it all the football stadia? That, I'm not a big football fan, unfortunately, not. but I'm a big fan of Italy. I've been... Not been a great summer for Inter Milan, but anyway, <laughs> we'll move on. Yes. Yeah, so I was born in Rome and I've been traveling a lot when I was young for my father's job. We have been living near Rome and then in Tuscany and then Verona near Venice. I've done my university university studies there. I studied architectural engineering and I started as an architect and then slowly starting to understand I liked the challenges and the strategic thinking behind the project. So I couldn't stay in front of a computer all day just with my handphones. Working on Revit wasn't really my thing, even if the I really Revit, liked that's it. that's the program that it is, designers yes. use. That sounds so pretty dull. Yeah. <laughs> it's very interesting and I think it's a great tool, but wasn't for me really so yeah, yeah. it sounds pretty dull to me but i'm sure it's really interesting but <laughs> so look i mean further to elizabeth's point one of the things that we've been seeing a lot and we i mean when was it last year when would the, when do we do that podcast it must have been a year or so back we had a big debate around the marks and spencer's refurbishment row on propcast when this kicked off actually and anyone listening to this you should go back and find that podcast it was an interesting conversation we had around mns and our conclusion really obviously was that it wasn't a binary black and white situation. There'd be many, many occasions where dropping a building and starting again would be the correct thing to do and that you can't refurbish everything and you have to think about the operational use and the future emissions from that. But tell us about Bureau 4. Give us the elevator pitch of Bureau 4 for people that might not know it. And sure. I'm keen to understand a couple of your projects, Martina, on the retrofit side. 
Sure. So Bureau4 is a company of independent project managers. So we work for developers, investors, and anyone that really wants to deliver a project. We have different offices in the UK, but I'm working for the London office. I'm working on a few projects in London, but others in the Golden Triangle. So I have one project in Oxford, for example, a life science project. Yeah, And that's with Mission Street. It is, yes. So Mission Street, really interesting. We had BGO, Bentall, Green Oak, on PropCast a few weeks back, one of Mission Street's backers. So this project you're talking about, Sycamore House, it's won a recent BCO award for the British Council Offices, and it's a refurbishment project of a former 80s office storage space that's been transformed. What's it being transformed into? What are some of the challenges with it? So uh, there are a few projects. This one, Sycamore House in Stevenage. We're doing another one in Bentley. Sorry, that's Oxford. the Stevenage one. That's a different yeah. one, isn't it? Sorry, forgive me. Both of them actually are quite similar because the idea behind them is to refurbish an old industrial shed to actually convert it to life science offices and laboratories. So, of course, as you can imagine, you're buying a building from... 50s, 60s, you have no idea what it is made of. You don't know what you're going to find. You just know that you will have to deal with it. So we had quite a lot of challenges with existing infrastructure, the actual existing ground conditions. So, of course, when you have to deal with existing, there is a lot that you have to capture and allow for a lot of unknown. But that's the challenge. That's what everyone should be really looking to. And when you talk about retrofit, really, and when you look at all these challenges and how people are reacting to big projects, a big example as Mark and Spencer, when you want to knock down a whole building, well, if you want to survive in this industry, you kind of have to make a change and be brave and take risks. And it's not anymore a choice. It's just what you have to do if you want to survive. And is there a problem... Elizabeth, how do you square that circle of the virtuous need to make things greener with the reality of the commercial and corporate environment? And I'm staring down the barrel of value engineering, which is obviously the bane of some parties' lives. It's other people's livelihoods to value engineer projects. But I'm interested in some of those counterproductive behaviours that often undermine a project and you guys on the front line often have to sort them out. Yeah, I find that you usually get to a point near end of Reba 3 where we need to... What does that mean? Explain that to humans that uh, aren't architects. So the Royal... Institute of British Architects. That's the one. (laughs) The project stages. So Reba 3 is kind of outline design. So you kind of know what you're designing, but you haven't gone into the details yet. So at the end of that, you have enough information to cost the project. So this is normally where it says, this is too expensive, we need to cut cost. And then the non-essentials is viewed as, you know, the sustainable so you take out the marble toilets? No, we keep the well, marble toilets. Yeah, I would say <laughs> so. But we take out the PV panels. Okay. You know, you, you, uh, yeah, you keep the gold door handles, but take off yeah. the wind turbines. Okay. So that's normally the stage where, you know, we need to cut costs. What can we do? Is sustainability one of them? Do we really have to have such low carbon targets? That's where we find that projects where we've had the really early engagement and very, very clear vision of what the criteria needs to be and what is your red line, that you cannot deviate from that. And we have a contract on that. That's where we can then refer back to that. Because if you can get involved early enough and get each discipline to fundamentally design their solution sustainably, it's not going to be an add-on. It's not necessarily going to cost more. And it's an integral 
part of the project. You know, we've had projects that reached re before, so the detailed design stage, and they said, oh, and by the way, we need low embodied carbon. I think this is one of the problems across the wider development construction. It's clients changing their mind at the last minute and then moaning because it costs them more money. Yeah. Let's be frank, let's call a spade a spade. It's often that level of slightly crazy thinking. And I suppose just on that point, Martina, how does an organisation configure itself in the current environment to be ready for this change? So Bureau 4, your project managers act as gatekeepers. But what does that mean and how does that play out? We are changing, but also clients are changing. So it's true that some of our clients might still be old-fashioned, let's say. So they're still following what's meant to be like years ago. But there are other clients that are way ahead in time. They actually want the change. And for us, really, instead of just waiting for the clients to tell us what to do, what we really like to do, we like to be proactive as a company. So we have this motto, we want to transform tomorrow. And we like to be that influencer in a project delivery that gives ideas and helps the optioneering and it helps the client to make well-informed decisions together with the team. So, so everyone- for people listening to this, what can they do differently? If you're a lawyer listening to this, an architect listening to this, or a client listening to this, or a bank, what can those different parties do to make all this process less friction? There is a real big gap in trust, I would say. Sometimes we find that we really need to create the right environment. It's not just about creating the right team with the technical aspects, but it's much more about the behavioral aspects. So people that actually like each other, they want to work with each other. And so when you have in a room people that trust each other and actually believe in what they're saying, they're listening to each other, that is making the change. And then we can see it every day. And take accountability. It's not somebody else's problem. It's your problem. Every single designer, whether you're an architect or a building services engineer, it's your problem. You need to fix this. Is it that simple, though? Because, again, structurally in organisations, you know, in complex projects, people don't want to take the blame. I mean, you guys are both as businesses involved with quite complex public projects, whether that's work you do for the government property agency in Whitehall, Elizabeth, other projects that you both do on the infrastructure side. They're complex projects, right? And let's be frank, public projects don't have a particularly good reputation for being on time and on budget. None of them are. And often that's because you've got lots of cooks and nobody wants to carry the hot pan. Well, I would say project success has always been being on time, being on cost within the scope. But it's not like that anymore. It's not about just going from point A to a point B with a straight line. We can take whatever road we want. If we want to change our mind, we need to be agile. I'm working on projects, for example, in the Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea, where you think that... So that's Vicar Duggan. You're working on is. a really awesome Sloan Street regeneration project which is an incredibly complex project that Cadogan's funding to reinvigorate the streetscape around Sloan Street to make it more walkable to add a lot more greenery and biodiversity there. Absolutely they're working on the public realm but also buildings along the road to make it just a different area and they have a very big net zero carbon strategy as an estate and of course that's something that we champion and we are helping them to achieve this goal and so when you work in a borough like Kensington and Chelsea, you would think, oh, we are never going to be able to 
do what we want for sustainability, but actually it's been the opposite. They've been the ones wanting to know more during the planning process. And we actually made informed decisions based on the most sustainable options. So we actually made assessments very early days, uh, even just during the first concept design of the project on how much embodied carbon uh, the project, one option would be against another, which means the carbon emissions of the materials brought in the building during the construction stage, which is incredible. And Elizabeth, just sort of thinking about that cultural shift and the roles and you talk about responsibility, how should people be thinking differently about leadership? Is it simply about top-down command and people at the heads of companies having a clear vision because in my experience in this sector having I've worked in this sector as, as people were bored of me repeating every week for some time now you know 18 years and certainly when I began out in mid 2000s nobody really wanted to know about sustainability it was something I focused on a lot during my five years at the British Property Federation and in many respects I was left alone to get on with that alongside Patrick Brown who now works for us at Montfort Communications as our head of ESG on real estate so That's obviously changed, thankfully, now, 17, 18 years later. But is there a shortfall? And does leadership have to come from the top? I think the point I was going to make is that a lot of the more progressive thinkers in the space aren't C-suite people. They're not the people on the boards of companies. They're people like you guys, the super smart individuals at the coalface that are making change happen. So two questions. What should firms be structuring in terms of their leadership? How should they be thinking about leadership? And how should they be finding those people to move the dial? Well, I find that sustainability leadership now, it has to be a sort of grassroots movement. So I think my role as sustainability lead is to nurture and to upskill and to bring everyone on board onto this movement. And jumping back to what we were talking about at the beginning with the UK Green Building Council leadership scheme. So when I joined Atkins, pretty much at the same time came this opportunity to take part in their Change Accelerator program. And the Change Accelerator is all about, well, what it says on the tin really, is to accelerate a cultural shift within an organisation. So we did a lot of work on looking at our purpose. And I discovered that my purpose, which I always thought was for me to become the best sustainability consultant there was, is actually not that. It's to nurture my team and to make them become the best leaders. So we'd be doing a lot of work on that. We'd be using this tool called the ladder of abstraction, which is where you take a concept and you think about it. You ask why, why do we care about it? So net zero carbon, for example, why is it important? And as you drill up, you actually realise that you do need to think about it to stop the climate change and to save our planet. And how can we do that? So as a structural engineer, you know, you can maybe not even use carbon, but use alternative materials or use less of it. How can we build slimmer and lighter? And how can we reuse materials? So That's where I want every designer to take that ownership and integrate the sustainability into their design. So that's where the sort of grassroots movement comes in and where you need to get everyone on board because you can't have a top-down approach. It has to be sort of from the bottom up. And your second part of the question, I do find that the younger, the more sort of recently educated people coming through, talent coming through, they're already on board. 
You know, we have people mm. doing sort of architecture and mechanical engineering and sustainability all baked into one degree. They come out rearing to go and we just need to give them the platform and the opportunity to use that. So how does a company do that? I guess within an Atkins type business, you mentioned, you know, you've got more employees than most big corporates. I mean, not really many big corporates that have got 50,000 global employees, but how does a smaller client do that? You know, the sorts of people that you guys work for on the private sector side, the private equity houses, the developers, the listed REITs, the banks, how does somebody find that role and how can those people be used in organizations? Well, talking about myself, for example, I'm not in the leadership senior or C-suite of the company. Well, you will be after this. I will be, yeah, of course. Absolutely. Uh, but I have a voice. <laughs> uh, I've always had a voice as part of my company. But actually, the really first day I started, I said, can I please do something about sustainability? I'm passionate about it. Would you help me do that? And I had like, everyone's like, yeah, just do it, whatever. We are here to just give you all the opportunities. And then that's where I found you. Just do it. And that's what I needed. Just someone to say, green light, go for it. And who was it that said that to you? It was actually the directors. So what I did, just started to search a bit. What is the best platform? What is the best organization I could start from? And that's where I decided to do the future leader course with the UK Green Building Council. And yeah. so there were people like me that were young professionals with just a bit more than five years of experience that were just passionate about sustainability, but wanted to do more. We wanted to make a change. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned, Elizabeth, that the youth are doing really well. If you are someone who isn't blessed with eternal youth, like the two of you and arguably me, but some people would probably beg to differ on that last point, how do people upskill themselves? How do we make sure that... People that have come from different generations from you two are able to benefit from the skills that you guys have, from the training that you both have had. And I suppose the emergence of new technologies, of different platforms, of different ways of thinking. How do we continue to upskill people? Because we're living longer, right? And they're going to be probably five generations of people in a workplace pretty soon. And that's an important point. And it's a problem if we're not continuing not just to refurbish buildings but refurbish the skill sets of people in businesses yeah you need to stay involved i mean within atkins we do a lot of cpd work that we offer and that we develop in-house we also use things that is readily available like on the uk green building council website there's a lot of courses that are free at least to members maybe to everyone i'm not sure there's that and then getting chartered being involved in your chartership organization so i'm a member of cywem so Chartered Institute of Environmental and Water Management. And there's a lot of CPD work that you can do through that and a lot of development. And I think, you know, listening to podcasts, there's quite a few interesting sustainability podcasts. Well, we've won awards for this podcast for our CSR and sustainability coverage. But a reminder to please share this with people. Just tell people to search Propcast wherever they get it from. And that's a good way of engaging. How does Atkins think about technology? How do you think about engaging people with emerging tech and obviously the emergence of AI is a big big theme with some of this stuff. We're lucky enough within building design to have a research and innovation team uh, and they are looking at a lot of that. They're working with universities to develop tech themselves and they are constantly looking at emerging tech and vetting that and implementing that. If we see that there's a gap and that we need to kind of plug that hole with a tool, they will go out and see what's out there. And if it doesn't exist, they will develop that in-house. Yeah, yeah. 
And what's your personal view on where things are going on the tech side? How do you see that disrupting the jobs that you do now in 10 years' time? What parts of your jobs are going to be overtaken by AI or made easier? What impact do you see that having on the universe within your professions? Well, what concerns me, being a project manager or the admin, is something that I could easily avoid doing. So there is something they are talking about, chat GPT, being able to do notes for you during meetings. That's just amazing. I would have to avoid wasting my afternoons and evenings just writing notes from meetings. So these kind of things we don't need anymore. And technology can actually make our work and my work much easier. I would be able to actually use my brain to do something a bit more exciting than writing notes. Yeah, no, I think that. that. Yeah, I mean, I love using but you have to be critical because that's one thing that maybe that's an engineer thing but if I stare at a blank page I just freeze I can't do anything (laughs) I need something as a starting point so it's a great tool to use you know as a starting point but you have to be so critical and you need the knowledge to critique it because it's in its infancy and I'm sure you know that there's a lot of errors in there that you need to be critical of but have you seen i can't remember what building it is but there is a building up at the minute with a hoarding around it and the hoarding uh, yeah, it's got that. the sign that says chat gpt please build my building yeah which i think is well our architects have used because they also have a, a drawing program so you can say you know build me a house that's you know these dimensions and it does using images but it kind of forgets to put doorways and stairs and you know you can't actually move from room to room at the moment but I think it's a great inspirational tool probably to get the ideas. Yeah we will always need a technical mind but what I think the much the difference between technology and us is really our behaviors and being human so when we think about a team and we are talking about a lot of people working on the same project for a long time we need to like each other for a long time and we need to do it well. So a machine can't really do it for us. And we need to be able to just survive during that process. Mm. What I would say, actually, just to interrupt on that, this is the first podcast since episode 88 back in March 2021, where I've had guests turn up with notes. So big, big <laughs> shout out to, to both Martin and Elizabeth. And actually, that podcast where the guests did turn up with notes was another one featuring sustainability experts. So maybe this is a thing I need to get more project managers and engineers. You should have a listen to that, listeners. It had Elementor and Hawkins Brown, engineering firm, architect firm on there. And we had the very awesome Clara Bragnall George from Hawkins Brown and Louisa Bowles on there. And they were talking about Letty, about whole life carbon. And that's definitely something that I would go back and listen to and share that. So shout out to engineers and project managers who make notes. It makes podcasts really cool. Some of us have to be organized. No, it's fine. It's fine. (laughs) But I would stress that we remain very unscripted, which I'm very proud of. Five and a half years of unscripted podcasts and five and a half years of not being sued for any kind of defamation (laughs) or libel. So long may that continue. A couple of closing thoughts from both of you. It's going to be a challenging market for at least the next 18 months, probably two years, given where we are in this country with inflation rates, where they are political uncertainty ahead. What are some of the things that you think we do need to learn from other countries and that we need to learn quickly and start to think about, I guess, cementing a lot more in law, in legislation? And this, you know, you can answer some of this. You work for the government. That's one of your clients. You're working on all sorts of projects that we can't talk about. Well, we can talk about a lot of the Whitehall buildings. Are there things that you've learned through that that would make you think differently about how we should be mandating and setting rules? 
I think one of the big things is the VAT on retrofit that doesn't exist on new builds. So that actually makes retrofit much more expensive. And it should be the other way around because we all need to think, you know, what can we keep before we start tearing down and building new? I mean, that's just the basics. Yeah, so it's, it's the typical problem of the left hand and the right hand of the tax system over there in one government department, the planning system over there in another, and the other government department making promises on net zero, none of them speaking to each other or aligning, which is something that I think many people will be frustrated and familiar with. Going back to what we were talking about at the start, I think it was your point this before, materials, has there been a knee-jerk response to the Grenfell tragedy and how we were almost putting up the face palm against timber we've decided that timber burns can't use timber to build buildings yeah i think we need to not work in a silo here and look to other countries because there's been so much work done in scandinavia and european countries where we don't have time to wait to have that proof ourselves within this country so who's the problem is that is that insurers is that the insurance industry saying oh we need comparables is well, it the banks who's to blame who do we need to shout out who do we need to call out rather and say i think it's the inherent assumption that you can't get insurance because i've spoken to insurance companies that say that no we can do that just talk to us we'll tell you what the risk is and then we'll manage that risk out but people assume that oh no we're not going to get insurance so we're not going to do it so it's shut down at a much earlier level before that's even investigated to make a slightly different example so together with new materials there is also a lot already in the market that is being used and demolished and is not used. For example, repurposed steel is a big, big topic in circular economy. And everyone is just scared about using that for one reason, and that's exactly that, the warranty of that repurposed steel. So it was on a building for years. Is it going to be good enough to use it in a new building? So actually insurers say they don't care as long as they have a piece of paper that says that it's fit for purpose. So they just need to do testing and that's all the insurer need. So there are lots of companies, a lot of developers that are actually working GPE, around this. formerly Great Portland State, now GPE. We've had GPE on the podcast a couple of times. It's boss, Toby Courtauld was on near the start of this year, if you want to go back and find that episode. But we've had GP on talking about a couple of its projects using recycled steel. And what they said was actually the steel probably underwent more testing than normal steel was because yeah. of the constraints and the rules set around it. So Elizabeth, you were going to say something? Yeah, no, I just wanted to take the opportunity to mention a pilot project. So Enfield Council has, I don't know if you've heard of their material exchange programme which you bring excess building materials from one project and then you can use it on another project. So it's sort of in its infancy, but this is what we need to do on a commercial scale. So I know that there are some trial projects where they do it on a domestic scale, but We had not Sarah Carey on from Enfield Council. Oh, when was that? That was a couple of years ago as well, actually, talking about it. But yeah, this is a great idea. And how does it work in practice? It's like a big bring and buy sale for anybody. You won't be familiar with Blue Peter, but listeners that grew up with Blue Peter will remember bring and buy sales of the 80s and 90s, probably before I was born. They have a physical storage space where they are bringing excess materials from, I think, deconstruction sites and also new sites where you have excess materials. And then it's almost like a loot database that I have this much extra. Loot, the newspaper loot, which many people will fondly remember for car adverts, new band members and second-hand furniture, all of the stuff you can now get on Nextdoor or Gumtree or eBay exactly. or Etsy. 
And is that stuff that they do more of in Norway? There is a trial project there as well in Oslo because they are regenerating a massive former industrial area there where they're doing very similar to what they're doing in Enfield. The problem identified there is the certification of the materials and the the problems with getting sign-off on the building if you have used materials that doesn't Sign-off from who? From building control equipment? From building control, yes. And that presumably becomes a chain of blame or, or chain of risk sharing where the building control folk want to know that the insurance firms have signed it off and they want to know some insurance companies tested it. Yeah, but then you come back to what you said just a minute ago about the steel, you know, that is probably tested way more than the virgin steel. Yeah, but forgive me, I'm not a child engineer, so I don't know the answer to this question, which is why you're here. Are there any international standards for all of these sorts of things that exist? So does recycled steel in Norway and recycled steel in Italy, is there some global standard by which if you buy it, you know whether it's kosher or not? I know in Norway, the steel has at least 95% recycled content. So it's probably not directly reused, which is, you know... Well, I'm not asking that. I'm just asking, is there a way to rate it? So my point is really, can a safety regime from one country be swapped out for another? Because I think that's part of the problem here, right? Is this is a lack of... Yeah, I can confirm. I don't exactly remember the name of the certification and the regulation, but we are working and dealing directly with the stock list that is called Cleveland Steel. And they do this testing for repurposed steel. And so they test those against these like targets and regulations and and the structural engineers just check the results and then they confirm whether the steel is fit for purpose for that particular project. It's a long process. From my side, we have to capture it as part of a program. It might take longer. It actually can be even cheaper than buying new steel. And that's something that's been floating for the last year. Mm. But at the end of the day, if you're doing a retrofit or you're doing a new building, your embodied carbon, so the carbon emissions of the building that you are developing is going to be much lower if you use circular yeah, economy. Yeah, and at some point, People are going to get taxed on the stuff. At the minute, I think people can play the games of offsets, although that's starting to be questioned and scrutinized a lot more. But at some point, people are going to be properly taxed for their carbon footprints. And I think for me, and the advice I give to my clients is they've got to stop ignoring that elephant in the room because it's going to happen at some point. And people risk getting caught with their trousers down, as often happens when rules change. One final question before we close, both of you. What advice would you give both to people starting out in their careers and wanting to impact in the way that you both are and what advice would you give to c-suite that are scratching their heads thinking how the hell do i solve all of these problems without basically killing my share price or totally undermining my investors what do i do so both ends of the seniority spectrum martina what would you and elizabeth advise people Well, if I start from the top, I would say we talked a lot about how Atkins, for example, is changing their core values. So the first thing is just sit around the room and talk about what your company goals are and widen them. So it's not just going to be about your company. It's not going to be about your project, but it's also about the planet and bigger achievements and bigger outcomes. And that is going to have a huge impact down to the more junior professionals and for them for the people starting their professions or that don't have much experience just be brave take risks and don't be afraid to ask and say what you think even to someone above you you might have an idea that might be actually quite interesting i can make a change in a project Mm. elizabeth i would say for the c-suite to look at the managers below you and hold them accountable 
And I think the accountability needs to go down the train all the way to the bottom. And then from the bottom up, yes, I think what Martina said, you know, with the enthusiasm, don't let the old fart cynicism kill your buzz and just keep that enthusiasm going and ask the awkward questions. Do you hold your managers accountable as well? Because it is not somebody else's problem. It is all our problem. Yeah, it's a good way of putting it. So look, let's leave it there. Thank you so much to both of you for coming on. It's a great conversation, lots to digest, lots to take away on everything from the leadership agenda, the sustainability agenda itself. And I'm sure there's much more that Elizabeth, your colleagues at Atkins can share with people and Martina, your colleagues at at Bureau 4 as well. So thank you to Elizabeth Montgomery, Building Design Sustainability Leader Atkins, Martina Concordia, Project Manager at Bureau 4. I've been Andrew Teacher at Montford, as always. You can subscribe to PropCast on all of the usual platforms. Please do share these podcasts with your friends and colleagues. The more listeners we have, the more everyone can benefit from some of the amazing massive brains that come on here and hopefully we won't have to wait another two years to get people turning up with notes so <laughs> there you go well good episode guys thank you very much for coming thank you along. for having us and and uh, yeah we'll see you guys very very soon take care and thanks very much for listening